Tech Fighter Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 552 for the 23rd of July, 2017. This week, it's all about photography, starting with how you can identify the best camera in the world. Then we'll take a look at some of the questionable tactics used by crooks who pose as legitimate camera sellers. In short circuits, the photography theme continues as we consider some additional factors when choosing a camera. And then why a camera with more megapixels might not be as good as one with fewer pixels. In spare parts, only on the website. Yep, the camera theme continues here with a camera comparison chart. And then we'll move on after I mention a special deal from Alien Skin and some improvements from Adobe for mobile editing. Research suggests that blockchain technology will save financial institutions lots of money. And if you buy snacks from food kiosks that are found in many corporate locations, crooks may have your credit card information and more. If you're thinking about buying a camera this year, you have more choices than at any time in the past. Photography is my primary hobby, although for more than a decade it was my profession. So before we even get started, I do have a confession to make about what I called this, which was how to find the best camera in 2017. There is no one best camera. What's best for me might not be best for you, and beyond that, what's best for me today at noon might be completely wrong for me at 3 p.m. I'll try to explain that and make some sense of it. To start, one of the first choices you'll make involves the size of sensors inside the camera. Full-size sensors and larger, cropped sensors, they're called APS-C, micro four-thirds cameras, compact cameras, and cell phone cameras. Each has advantages, each has disadvantages, What's right for me might not be what's right for you. I already said that, right? So let's take a high-level view of what's out there. There's a Wikipedia illustration on the TechBiter Worldwide website that shows the various sensor sizes. It's actually considerably larger than these sensors are in real life, but it's a good way to illustrate the options. If you want to visualize the true size of the sensor, the 35mm full-frame sensor would measure 36 millimeters, or about 1.42 inches, diagonally. There are two APS-C sizes, one size used by Nikon, Pentax, and Sony, the other by Canon. These are probably the most commonly found sensors. So let's start with the big guys, the full-size sensors. Consumer cameras in the past have typically been 35mm single-lens reflex devices. They use 35mm film, and most of today's digital cameras have been designed around that model. The full-size sensor is approximately the size of 35mm film. But there are also cameras that replicate medium format film sizes, typically 6x6, 6x4.5, or 6x7 centimeters. These are cameras that were used by professionals. I'm going to ignore these larger format cameras because their cost eliminates them from consideration by anybody who isn't in one of two groups, either those whose entire income comes from photography or those who are independently wealthy. Cameras with full-size sensors are expensive typically $4,000 or more just for the body, so they are not appropriate for hobbyists. 
The cameras also require lenses that are designed to provide full coverage for the sensor, and those are more expensive. The full-size sensor camera will look and feel more like a traditional 35mm camera. For example, the image 35mm film photographers expect to see with a 50mm lens will be what they see with a full-size digital camera. Wide-angle lenses will still create wide-angle images. The file size will be huge, possibly 50 megabytes or larger for each image. Larger sensors create files with less noise. Overall, that's a good choice of cost, size, and weight are not factors that you need to consider. Now, I said I would ignore the medium format cameras, but I do have to at least mention this. You could purchase the Hasselblad H5D 200C medium format DSLR camera for $45,000. And then add some lenses. Now, lenses are much less expensive. They're $2,000 to $10,000 each. Or more realistically, if you want something big, there's the Nikon D5 body, sells for about $8,000. Canon's EOS 1D Mark II is on sale for a little over $6,000. Body only, you're going to need lenses too. So let's take a little step down in size to cropped sensors. These are called APS-C cameras. Most digital SLRs purchased by consumers and by a lot of professionals have what's called an APS-C or cropped sensor. The active area is somewhat smaller than that of cameras with a full-size sensor. If you choose a Nikon camera with an APS-C sensor, a 50mm lens will be the 35mm film camera equivalent of 75mm. Canon cameras with an APS-C sensor will effectively render images from a 50mm lens as if the lens was an 80mm on a film camera. And this is where it gets confusing. A 50mm lens is still a 50mm lens, but the APS-C sensor records only the central part of the image from that lens. The result is sometimes called a multiplication factor, even though that isn't really the case. Still, that might be the best way to think about it. Cameras with APS sensors usually cost $500 to $2,000 for the body. Lenses are less expensive because they don't have to cover a full-size sensor. The optics, geometry, and physics get a little complicated, so let's just leave it there. For most serious amateurs, a cropped sensor camera is the perfect choice. This is even more true for those of us whose eyes tend to favor telephoto views because a 200mm lens suddenly looks like a 300mm lens on a Nikon or a 320mm lens on a Canon. If you're a photographer who prefers super wide-angle images, cropped sensor cameras might be a little frustrating. A couple of examples of these cameras, Canon's EOS 7D Mark II with an 18 to 135 millimeter zoom lens is just $1,950. Nikon's D7200 camera with an 18 to 140 millimeter lens sells for a little less than $1,500. A new entry in the digital photography market are micro four-thirds cameras, and for once some camera manufacturers decided to work together the result became the Micro Four Thirds system. Unlike APS-C cameras that have a multiplication factor of 1.5 or 1.6, depending on the manufacturer, all Four Thirds cameras have a two times multiplication factor. Olympus and Panasonic introduced the concept in 2008, and now camera bodies are available from Blackmagic, DJI, JVC, Kodak, Olympus, Panasonic, and Hiomi. No matter which camera body you choose, you can add a lens, any lens, manufactured by Cosina Voigtlander, DJI, Kawa, Kodak, Metacon, Olympus, Panasonic, Samyang, Sigma, SLR, Magic, Tamron, Tokina, Viadra, Hiomi, and 
probably some others. This is a remarkable advancement because lenses used to be manufacturer-specific. These cameras are also smaller than full or cropped sensor cameras. They range in price from around $350 to $2,000, depending on the manufacturer and the included lenses. Because of their size, micro four-thirds cameras have electronic viewfinders instead of optical viewfinders found on larger cameras. Electronic viewfinders do have some advantages, and they also have some disadvantages. You'll see better images in low light, but resolution is limited to that of the viewfinder. An electronic viewfinder displays what the sensor sees instead of a pure optical view. The absence of a mirror eliminates the mirror slap noise, that thump that you hear on a normal SLR camera, and the resultant camera vibration and movement. However, the larger crop factor does produce greater depth of field for the equivalent field of view and f-stop compared to an APS-C or full-frame camera. That can be a disadvantage if the photographer wants to blur the background. There's a big price range on micro four-thirds cameras. The Panasonic Lumix DC GH5 body sells for $2,000. You'll need to buy one or more lenses to go with it. But the Panasonic Lumix DMC G85 camera with a 12 to 60 millimeter zoom lens costs about $1,000. And the YI Technology M1 with a 12 to 40 millimeter lens, just $350. Maybe you're wondering about compact cameras? Well, a compact camera can be essentially the modern equivalent of a point-and-shoot film camera, you know, like the old Kodak Instamatic series. But these cameras can also offer a lot of manual settings. Sensor sizes vary all the way from full frame down to micro four-thirds. Some can even create raw images, not just JPEGs. For example, I have a Canon G12. Although it is a compact camera that can automate everything, it also offers many of the features found on larger cameras. It can create raw images, which is what I prefer, and it offers all of the manual overrides that are usually found on larger cameras. A higher-end compact camera might be the best choice for somebody who understands how cameras work, but doesn't want to carry 15 to 20 pounds of gear. It's also a good choice for those who want to carry a second camera that's lighter than their primary camera. Vivitar has some compact digital cameras in the $30 range. The cameras in this price range offer few features or adjustments. When a zoom function is provided, it'll be a digital zoom instead of an optical zoom, and digital zoom significantly degrades image quality. At the other end of the scale, Leica has a full-frame point-and-shoot camera that's priced at $4,500. Fujifilm has several models in the $1,000 to $1,500 range, and you'll find a variety of Canon PowerShot models in the $400 to $600 range. And if you're talking about photography these days, the elephant in the room is the cell phone. It seems that everybody has a smartphone these days, and every smartphone has a built-in camera. Despite the tiny sensors in these cameras, the image quality is little less than phenomenal. They create only JPEG images, at least so far, so there's no option for a RAW file. Unless you consider your smartphone to be a camera that can also be used to make phone calls, the camera is essentially free if you think of it as a phone. It's just part of the phone. But then the phone should probably be considered to be a pocket computer that connects to the Internet, turns into a book reader, and also just happens to allow you to make phone calls. Well, after all that, it's time to figure out what is the best camera in the world. Professional photographers say the best camera in the world is the one you have with you. If your $30,000 Nikon full-frame sensor camera with 12 lenses and 5 external flash units is at home, and you have only the camera that's in your smartphone, 
That phone-based camera is the best camera in the world for you at that time. After all, it's not the hardware that makes the picture. It is the photographer. My younger daughter is a graphic artist. She has a Canon compact camera, but that camera is often at home when she wants to take a picture. She also has a camera in her Android smartphone. Now, she could get higher technical quality images with her compact camera or with an APS-C or full-frame camera, but that's not what she has with her. Because she has a good eye for composition, her smartphone images are often spectacular. Let's move on to think about buying a camera. If you've ever priced a camera using the internet, you'll find that all of the seller's prices will be within a few dollars of each other. And then you'll see other prices, maybe one that's just unbelievably low. Unbelievably is the word here. If everybody else has priced a given camera model at $1,100 and one store is selling it for $850, one thing is clear, you're not going to be able to purchase that camera for $850. In some cases, a legitimate seller might offer a gray market camera shipped from Japan. That means the camera will not have a U.S. warranty, and you'll have to ship it back to Japan if it ever needs service. You may be willing to accept that trade-off, but be aware that there is a significant trade-off. That is a legitimate offer, though. In most cases, the lowball price you see on the Internet isn't really available. You'll go to the store's website and order the camera. Everything seems fine until the next day when somebody from the store calls to say, Oh, that's not the camera you want. That'll be followed by some high-pressure pitch for add-ons. They'll want to sell you the standard equipment that comes with the camera. Things like the body cap, the instruction manual, the camera strap, the kit lens, battery, and battery charger. Now, these are all in the box and should be included in the price. And with a legitimate store, they will be. They'll probably also want to sell you a warranty, which the manufacturer and importer provides. And when he gets finished, you're going to end up paying considerably more than if you had bought the camera from a legitimate store. And if you refuse to take the offer, your order will be summarily canceled. So, as I'm recording this week's program, let's do a little price shopping. Let's look for, oh, let's say the lowest price on a Nikon D7200 body, popular camera. Earlier today, I checked some legitimate stores. B&H Photo has it for $996. The list, by the way, is about $1,500. Adorama says $996. Walmart says $996. And Amazon has it for $996. But I did a Google search. Turned up two for $649. The first website says the retail price is $1,299, and their price is $649. The camera is new, they say, not refurbished. The other site, pretty much the same thing. Now, I'm not going to name either of those sellers, but what if I check the Better Business Bureau? The first company's entry has this on the BBB website. BBB has received multiple reports from consumers that the company is engaged in bait-and-switch scheme, accepting online orders for products and then contacting consumers to claim they would need to pay more money to receive the correct product. Also on the BBB website, the other company has the lowest possible rating, and that's because of the number of complaints filed against it and the company's failure to respond. So, buyer beware. 
There are other scams, too. An advertisement that was included with a Dilbert cartoon this past week promised that it could make my smartphone camera equal to a $4,000 SLR. You'll see a copy of that advertisement on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Looks pretty cool. But the image says stores are sold out. All right, that happens. But then the manufacturer is offering 75% off for orders placed today. Well, there's a major red flag alert. If stores are sold out, what rational manufacturer would offer a 75% discount? So I scrolled down. The website page is designed to look a lot like a review, and the writer said that I should grab this bargain right now. The review then provided a lens comparison. You'll see that on the TechBiter Worldwide website. According to this review, lenses from Nikon, Zeiss, and Leica aren't coated. That is simply a lie. The review also claims that Nikon, Zeiss, Leica, and Canon lenses aren't high contrast, whatever the heck that means, and that they don't have low aberration. The review also says that only Nikon and Zeiss lenses have low distortion and that only Nikon and Canon lenses have low vignetting. Well, other than the ProShot HDX, of course, their product, which, of course, excels in every measure. So there's your second huge red flag. To this I say nonsense. All of the manufacturers coat their lenses. All of their lenses can reproduce high contrast and low contrast scenes. All lenses from legitimate manufacturers display low aberration low distortion, and low vignetting. In other words, the entire chart is essentially processed food from the south end of a northbound bull. For my own amusement, I wanted to see what this thing would cost. The price wasn't mentioned anywhere in the review, so I clicked the link. The page failed to load. These little clip-on lenses typically come in sets of three or four. You get a fisheye, a macro, and a wide angle. They generally sell for 15 to 30 dollars. For that price, the lenses are certainly plastic, not glass, and they will not be coated. Now that's not to say that such a set of add-on lenses is useless, but it's sure not going to make your cell phone the equivalent of a digital SLR. If you happen to encounter a review like this, scroll down a little. You might see some additional information. That information might be useful. I scrolled to the bottom of this review, and the first two paragraphs down there told me everything I needed to know. This is an advertisement, it said and not an actual news article, blog, or consumer protection update. This website may be compensated for clicks or actions that are produced from various articles. There is a lot of text, gray text on a black background, all capital letters, and it said, Marketing Disclosure. This website is a marketplace. As such, you should know that the owner has a monetary connection to the product and services advertised and provided. The owner receives payment whenever a qualified lead is referred, but that is the extent of it. The owner receives no further compensation of any kind should you choose to obtain a new insurance policy. Wait, insurance policy? What on this website previously mentioned insurance? Oh well. It continues. All of the information regarding the goods and services mentioned on this website is provided by the owner. The owner does not recommend or endorse any product or service advertised on this website. Now that's despite these words further up. I would advise you to grab your set before the super low introductory price is raised. That's not a recommendation? Would you trust that website? I sure didn't.
in short circuits, let's continue with the camera theme with other camera considerations. When you're choosing a camera, there are some other factors that deserve consideration. Here are some that I think about when I'm trying to determine which camera might be right for a particular task. First, RAW versus JPEG file formats. Digital cameras can store files in one of two formats, either RAW or JPEG. Cell phone cameras offer only the JPEG format, at least now. These are small files, but that's because in the process of storing the image, the process discards significant amounts of unnecessary data. Now that's fine if the image is perfectly exposed and doesn't suffer from any other problems. Some point-and-shoot cameras also offer only JPEG images. If the camera can save images as RAW files, those files contain all of the information the sensor was able to capture. As a result, you'll have significant control over exposure, color temperature, contrast, and even individual colors using an application like Adobe Lightroom. Although minor enhancements can be applied to JPEG images, the greatest flexibility will come from RAW files. You have a lot of manufacturers to choose from. Some digital cameras are made by traditional camera manufacturers such as Canon, Nikon, and Hasselblad. Others come from electronics manufacturers like Sony, Panasonic, and Samsung. The companies that have been making cameras for decades tend to build cameras that look and feel like traditional cameras. Electronics manufacturers often take another approach and design electronic devices that take pictures. Experienced photographers who grew up using traditional film cameras generally prefer cameras that look and feel like film cameras. Now that's probably going to be less important as people who have grown up using cell phones as cameras start to look for more capable hardware. You might be able to choose between an optical viewfinder, an electronic viewfinder, or no viewfinder. Cell phones and some point-and-shoot cameras have no viewfinder. Instead, the user frames the picture using a screen on the back of the camera or the phone. That can be a challenge in bright light. Most micro four-thirds cameras and all of the larger digital SLRs have viewfinders. Some of those are optical, others are electronic. Electronic viewfinders can be easier to use in dim light, and they do a better job of displaying what the digital image will look like. Because an electronic viewfinder eliminates the pentaprism and mirror found in traditional SLRs, the cameras are smaller, they're quieter. An optical viewfinder is just what the name suggests, a view looking directly through the lens that will capture the image. camera that has 80 gazillion 300 billion 435,000 megapixels won't necessarily create a better image than one that has just 12 megapixels, or 10, or even 3. There's a lot more to an image than the number of pixels. One important consideration is the size that you want the resulting image to be. If you're going to print a photograph, you'll want an image that can create about 300 pixels per inch on paper. Now here's what that means. To print an image that's 10 inches wide and 8 inches tall, the long side of the image should be 3,000 pixels wide. Don't bother with the internal resolution that's reported by some image editors. Instead, just find the size of the image in pixels and see if there are enough pixels to provide the pixel count on paper that you need. If you do that, you might reasonably presume that a digital image file that's 3,000 pixels wide would produce a horrible wall size print 30 inches wide. After all, that's what the math says, because that would be just 100 pixels per inch, and I just said you need 300. What that number doesn't take into account, though, is perception and viewing distance. 
An image that's only 10 inches wide is small enough to be held in the viewer's hand, so you'll probably view it from a distance of 10 to 12 inches. At that distance, 300 pixels will look just fine. Now consider that 30-inch wide image. It's probably in a frame. It's probably hanging on a wall. Certainly you're not going to handhold it. The viewing distance now is going to be greater, maybe 3 to 5 feet. And at that distance, 100 pixels per inch will look just fine. If you want to take that to extremes, consider this. Highway billboards are often printed at just 10 pixels per inch. That's right, 10 pixels per inch. Up close, the result would not be pleasing. But from 500 feet away, the image will look crisp and clear. The quality of the pixels is also more important than the number of pixels. The sensor sizes differ, so does the number of pixels on the sensor. So let's pick a number at random. How about 30 megapixels? You might have a Hasselblad medium format camera that records 30 megapixels, a full-frame Nikon that records 30 megapixels, a cropped sensor Canon that records 30 megapixels, a Fujifilm Micro Four Thirds camera that records 30 megapixels. If a pixel is a pixel, then these cameras should all produce images of equal quality, shouldn't they? But they won't. Check out the TechBiter Worldwide website. You'll see a couple of images that I created that have 10 dots across and 10 dots down. They're in two different sizes. What they're illustrating is 100 pixels on a sensor. On the large sensor, notice how large the dots are. Then take a look at the smaller image. When everything is smaller, those little dots are smaller. The pixels are smaller. Now, in reality, of course, the sensors are a lot smaller than this, and there are way more pixels, so the images are intended really only to display the relative differences. Two cameras with an equal number of pixels but different sensor sizes won't create identical images because larger pixels are better than smaller pixels. You'll get an image with less noise, for one thing, and that's why the photographer who does nothing but commercial product photography that's intended for use in magazines might justify spending $40,000 for a camera with a large sensor. There are other factors too, such as the dynamic range of the sensor and the quality of the lens you put on the camera, but the key point remains, it's not just pixels. But you might think it's all just photography, even in spare parts, only on the website. The camera theme continues here with a camera comparison chart, and then we move on after I mention a special deal from Alien Skin, and some improvements from Adobe for mobile editing. Also this week, research suggests that blockchain technology will save financial institutions a lot of money. And if you buy snacks from food kiosks that are found in many corporate locations, crooks may have your credit card information and more. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website www.techbiter.com and if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.